I'm Chris Biddle and uh, welcome to episode 61 of Inside AgriTurf. This is the third AgriTurf Talk episode of 2022 and follows panel debates on recruitment and the environment. The topic we are addressing today is the future of the dealership. Now that does not mean is there a future for dealers. Oh, far from it. The industry will always be stronger with manufacturers and dealers working in harmony to provide the customer with the best possible buying and support experience. However, the industry is constantly evolving. So we'll consider the factors that may well shape the UK dealer landscape over the coming years. And to help me peer into this particular crystal ball, let me introduce today's panel. Uh, David Withers is Managing Director of Iseki. Oh, is it Iseki or Iseki, David? Whatever works for you. <laughs> Thank you. Of Iseki, then UK and Ireland, which he formed uh, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, after returning to the UK from the US, where he'd spent five and a half years as President and CEO of Jacobson, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, prior to which, he was a demonstrator initially for a turf machinery supplier and spent 10 years in senior roles at Ransom Jacobson at Ipswich. So, David, welcome. Um, because of necessity and lockdowns and so on, uh, you were one of the first suppliers to embrace selling online and use social media uh, because of the lockdowns. Uh, looking back, was, was that a lucky break for you? I think it was, actually. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to claim that it has any great strategic vision for it or anything like that. It's just one of those frustrating things when you've got your own business and you're you know, you go to work every day trying to drive it forwards to, you know, meet clients, build the business, build the brand. And then you're stuck at home and unable really to influence what is going on. It was intensely frustrating. And so we're just kind of kicking around. So what can we do to try to maintain that relationship with our customers and try to have that, you know, continuing brand building going on even whilst we were stuck at home? And, you know, it was during the very tight part of lockdown where unless you were at a number 10 uh, party you weren't really allowed out and uh and so uh you know this was something we could do at home with my wife filming uh, these videos on her iphone so it cost us nothing and i just felt as much as anything it made me feel better that i was actually contributing towards the business rather than just being a, a helpless spectator as it were and a fledgling business at that, of course. Yes, yeah, it was relatively new at that Good. point. One of, one of the things we were able to do, unfortunately, where I live here, I've got, got some, some land. And so I've always had the machines here for at least two or three weeks before doing the video so that I actually have used them, I'm comfortable with them, I'm very familiar with them, so that I really did know how they worked and what they did. And, and I think that, that helped, and I think that probably came across in the videos. Great. Our next guest is James Tuckwell. Uh, James is Managing Director of Tuckwell's, a multi-branch John Deere dealership representing the Deere brand in a swathe of eastern and now southeastern counties of England. Uh, James gained, gained a degree in agricultural business management at Y College in Kent. His uh, original ambition, I read, was to start a career in sports management, but the lure of the family firm prevailed. So uh, was that a good decision, James? And uh, was it more a question of a family lunch pressure or, or a no-brainer for you? Yeah, well, I think looking back, uh, it's, it definitely was a good decision now. Business has you know, been fortunate that it's gone from strength to th strength, and uh, it's always nice to be in charge of your own destiny. God knows if I'd been any good at sports management at all. So, uh, so yeah, looking back now, it, it was definitely a good decision. 
And uh, it was probably a little nudge in the right direction for my grandfather at the time who uh, yeah, got me back in line and told me that uh, Monte Carlo wasn't the place to be. Worthingworth was where I needed to to be. So, um, so yeah, a little nudge in, in the right direction. But it's, right. it's, it's nice to see David today and that he's taking Izeki on from strength to strength because grandfather was actually the first ever importer of Izeki into the UK which he brought over after um, finding it when he was uh, uh, in Japan during the war times. Well, I didn't know that. And what a, what a wonderful uh, connection we've got there. And uh, last man, member of my panel, uh, somebody very well known to uh, those in the trade, Howard Pullen, is a board member of CLIMAR, the European Dealer Association, uh, and a past president of the UK Dealer Association, BAGMA. Howard began his career exporting used tractors to the USA, and later established a dealership selling Renault tractors and class combines and machinery, which was subsequently acquired by class and operated as Southern Harvesters. Howard retired with a small R in uh, 2015, but subsequently started his own business selling secondhand tractors and machinery. And is fresh from cleaning off a combine on Dover docks in Storm <coughs> Eunice just over a week ago. So, so um, have you dried out yet, uh, Howard? Well. I'm, I'm definitely too old to be doing these sort of things now, rolling around under combine. So uh, I'm going to have to find some younger assistants, I've decided. But it's, it's not easy to get a combine clean these days, particularly, uh, you know, on a farm. Only a nutter would go and try and clean it in the middle of a storm. <laughs> but anyway, we, we think we've got it clean. Troubles with them being rejected by the APHA. So it's a real struggle. So welcome and thank you for joining me today. The future direction of travel for dealers is often determined by factors outside their direct control. We simply do not know what is round the corner, as has been vividly demonstrated over the past two years. And now, I'm recording this against the background of probably one of the most serious conflicts since 1945. The invasion of Ukraine has resulted in Russia being unilaterally isolated, both financially and commercially. For some years, farm machinery manufacturers have eyed up the huge opportunities that exist in Russia. Virtually all the major tractor manufacturers have embarked on joint ventures to bring advanced technology and greater efficiency to that vast market. It's still early days, but what impact could all this have on the industry as a whole, I wonder? And James? Indeed, we've got a quite a strong export market to Ukraine and uh Actually, one of our customers that buys a lot of machinery is, is currently fighting uh, out there as we speak. I've had some text messages off him uh, just this week, and uh, it's pretty grim and pretty brutal stuff out there from what I understand. I can't help but think it's going to have a, just an overarching and terrible impact on us, you know, both at home and, and, and further afield. I mean, we're already suffering huge gas, oil, energy price hikes um, in the last few months. And, and you know, it's only going to get worse as a result of, of this uh, of this conflict. Um, we know fertilizer prices are sky high and through the roof. And, you know, will we even be able to get fertilizer for our for our crops going forward over the next six, eight, 12 months? Who knows? Food prices are bound to shoot up. We're already seeing a big spike in wheat prices. How, when will these sanctions end? How far will they go? Uh, will they Will they end up affecting food and, and machinery? And, you know, inevitably, if the world becomes a smaller place because Russia and whatever other parts of the world that they end up occupying or not are sanctioned away from the world, a smaller world is definitely going to be a, a smaller place and a smaller economy, isn't it? So I, I think it's incredibly scary. 
scary times for all of us, to be honest with you. And just to remind listeners that you as a company do have your own farms, don't you? Indeed, yes. We've got a, we've got a little arable unit, so we're sort of seeing both sides of the, of the coin, really. Yeah. And, and Howard, um, do you have much machinery that, that goes in that direction, particularly to Ukraine and even Russia? Uh, no, I haven't ever sent anything to Russia, but the Ukraine has been a big market for, for the last several years. And, uh, and I've, uh, I mean, I've sent three combines there this year, well, since September, uh, I have another one that was due to, is due to go there, but everything's gone very quiet. I don't think that one's going to happen at all. So, uh, yes, it's it's a very difficult situation, and I'm sure there's a lot of companies that are much bigger in the business than I am who will who will be hit quite hard because it's been a really good market, and I have to say, good people to do business with. My experience in the Ukraine has been good. Well, the spirit has certainly shone through in the last few days, if uh, if everything's to be believed. Uh, David, uh, uh, any sort of connection with uh, sending? I understand Russia is actually in your patch. Uh, does it? Do you send any uh, product through to there? Very little, really. So it's never been. Whilst we are sort of allowed to sell into that area with our with our product line, it's not been something we've focused on, um, as we've had a lot of other areas and opportunities for us to deal with. I think overall, though, for you know, it is going to have an impact on the economies uh, around the world. There's no doubt that it's a shock to the system. You know, all of the financial institutions in particular hate shock and change. And so I think it is going to have some impact. You know, the devaluation of the ruble, obviously, what did it go down 30, 40% or whatever it was? That's going to make everything massively expensive there. And I think it's going to be the manufacturers who've actually got facilities in Russia particular where you know it could be quite awkward and difficult for them i think probably for everybody else it's just going to be a, a smaller market that we're dealing with you know it, it's it, we're not going to be sending goods goods there for a while right well thank you for that and let's hope that uh, the news improved but uh, at this stage in in it it, uh, it doesn't look very hopeful Let's uh, get back to uh, the uh, the point in hand. Now, the UK is well served by a network of mainly family-owned uh, dealerships, many stretching back several generations. Um, but that may not always be the case. So is it an attractive proposition, uh, I'm asking, to open a new dealership today? David, I come to you first. Uh, firstly, I understand and in conversation with another Japanese tractor manufacturer that there isn't such a thing as a dealer network in japan is is that correct well they use uh they have their own company owned stores is much more common in japan than uh than using a dealer network so yes same for us actually izeki have their own own company owned stores throughout japan and that's how they sell you know to the end user but that that is a historical thing it's always been that way and uh it's not necessarily how uh, we would see it in in other territories so turning to the UK, how easy is it for you as a, as a relatively, I won't say you're a new entrant because Azeki's been around in the UK for a long, long time, uh, but you've got a new generation company there. Uh, how easy is it to find new dealerships? Well, what would be your ideal dealer? Is it an ag dealer? Is it a turf dealer? Is it a, a combination of both? Yes, I, th- I think what we've probably tried to do is to look more at a market than at geography. So we have some uh, dealers where we've got two dealers in relatively close proximity, but one very focused maybe on the ATV estate, you know, where they're selling ATVs, they're selling into the estates, those kind of areas, and they're not really touching turf, as it were. And then we might have a turf dealer just down the road. We might have an ag dealer. I mean, one of the things that we've 
my perception anyway, is that different dealers go through different doors. You're not always having the same dealer calling on the same customer. You know, there are varieties. People have different specialities. So I think because of our little niche that we occupy, and we, we've, you know, the reason we don't bring in big tractors, because there are big Izeki tractors that we could bring in from Japan if we wanted to, but we don't want to because we coexist at the moment with the big ag boys. We can go into somebody who's got, not John Deere, but who's got, you know, Case, New Holland, uh, Massey Ferguson, Class, whatever else it happens to be. And we coexist with them because we don't try and compete with them by bringing in big tractors. Likewise, we could bring in some petrol-powered ride-on lawnmowers, but we don't because then we'd start to bump into your Steegers and your Mountfields and Westwoods and these other guys. And by narrowing our range... It gives us a very wide variety of dealers that can trade with us without irritating their other brands. So we're very happy to be the opposite of a long liner, if you like. We are specifically a short liner who fills a little niche uh, and therefore can find dealers relatively easily because we coexist with so many other people. Uh, you, you've often talked about having a single brand, a single focus brand, and, and not a house of brands has been a, a distinct advantage. Yes, I think that's a really good, you know, when you think about it from a manufacturer's point of view, you know, there are some of the, you know, the monsters out there who can be a single brand and can long line all the way through. Then there are others who would have taken more of a house of brands approach, if you like, rather than a branded house. But I think a lot of that comes down to how confident are you in your distribution? I think if you're a a real long liner, uh, a monster company, if you like, probably your dealers are very well funded, very much focused on your line. And if you acquire another company, you can simply paint it your corporate colors and put it through your existing channel. If you're less confident in your channel, you're more likely to keep another brand so that you can have a separate channel uh, to sell that because you're not as confident that the whole lot would be promoted adequately through your, uh, through your network. So I think it does come down to the length of the line, the strength of the brand determines what your distribution strategy would be. And a very short question, but possibly a long answer. What makes a good dealer? Uh, people, I'd say. You know, if you get you get the right person there. I mean, I'm still a great believer that people buy off people. You know, find brands important, price important and all the rest of it. But in my opinion, uh, a lot of it comes down to the right people. And if you've got good, good guys in a, in a dealership, they will sell. Uh, James, I might just turn the question round slightly to you. What makes a good supplier in your uh, eyes? I mean, you've got one major good supplier, so I'm sure you're not going to diss them. Well, it's the same answer, really, isn't it? It's people. It's people that engage with us, the people that come and support us, help with us, work with us. And uh, we always find that the manufacturers that we sell the most amount of machinery for are the ones that come and support us and and work with us. I mean, it's, it's partnership at the end of the day, and um, you need to get in a relationship where we need them as much as they need us and vice versa. And if you're all in that same boat together, you've all got a bit of skin in the game and you're all trying to achieve the same results and you work together and you're fair to each other, then partnerships can be a, can be a wonderful thing. So I think it's, it's people and partnership probably. Uh, you're, you're able to uh, obviously build on the legacy that from your grandfather and father uh, founded. Um, do you sometimes stop and wonder, what would be the opportunities for starting a business in, in the current climate and financial and market? I think uh, it's a bit it's a bit like what David said. I sort of had to think about that, really. And I think for the more bespoke, the more niche areas of, of 
turf and agriculture, there's still a great opportunity for people to get themselves set up and uh, try and make an impact in the industry. Um, new, new technologies, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, AMS equipment and, and um, technology suppliers come in and, and really sort of make a big impact in the industry. So I think if you're for bespoke niche areas, I think there's a really strong opportunity for, for new dealerships to emerge. But I, I do think for the full line, um, if you're going into sort of core product, yeah, I, I would say it'd be pretty pretty hard work to try and get involved. Howard, um, you sit um, with fellow dealers from across Europe, and um, I understand that uh, Klimar is about 16 member countries, I think. And, That's right, uh, yeah, 16. And uh, I see it represents something like 19,000 dealerships. Are there any main differences? Are there principal differences between dealers, the dealer model that we've got in the UK, and that practiced by other markets, other countries? Yes, I think, I mean, in some countries, there's obviously quite large cooperatives uh, who are who are dealers, franchise dealers uh, in some countries. I mean, there's been huge changes with um, rationalisation of dealerships all across Europe, really, with, you know, with the main manufacturers um, and, you know, reducing down to, well, I think probably in, in the Netherlands, they're down to just three uh, John Deere dealers left in, in the Netherlands now. So... There's huge changes, and and the, the the companies that are there have got bigger, um, and the cooperatives that are, that are in Germany, I mean they are they're still there, but they've had to change along with the manufacturers' um, demands. Really, it's a it's a, been a changing business. I mean, going back to to do is there scope for for new dealers? I'm sure there anyone enterprising will will um, be able to start on their own, but but. It is all about people. I mean, I started on my own in 1978 as a Deutz dealer, actually, when Deutz was hardly known in the in the UK, and we built up a really a really good business. But there's probably not quite the opportunities to pioneer like we did then. David mentioned funding. Funding a dealership is obviously vital. This is the principal challenge, and I I often wonder why the agricultural machinery dealer sector doesn't seem to attract uh, as many external investors as perhaps it it should i mean i think there are funders out there available for for a solid you know for a solid company that's got expansion plans um i think in terms of you know if you're thinking about venture capitalists and people like that coming into the space and injecting capital i i i'm not sure that it is the most attractive space for them to look at and it may not be a space that they fully understand so i mean there were a few out there aren't there where where vc have come in but you know when you when you look at the overall returns uh, that the, the the dealerships put in you know it's it's decent but it's not what i would describe as exciting you know if you took in the round, if you just took everybody, you know, the to- total profitability of the entire dealer network, whatever flavor it happened to be, because there is a lot of capital cost. You've got a lot of metal lined up there. It's competitive. You know, we've all been living with the fact that for the last 30 odd years, the, the factories, if they're all running flat out, can produce more product than the market demands. And and, and that is a recipe for um, slightly tighter margins and uh, a more aggressive sales approach. So I think that's probably been the main reason you haven't seen those guys flooding in is I think overall the returns are comfortable for a family business, but are they exciting for an investor? Possibly not. Um, uh, James, you, you've obviously, your company has grown organically 
since the 1950s. You have obviously bought into the concept of the John Deere dealer for tomorrow concept, really, who set down parameters. Do you get the sense that there is not enough money or investment coming in from outside? I think there's quite a lot of money going into agritech technology uh, to develop new robotics and various other systems, but it doesn't seem to filter down to the to the ground floor, if you like. I don't know. I think there's I think there's a fair amount of investment going on um, in infrastructure, in, in dealerships across the country at the moment, if I'm honest. I think there's a huge amount of money being spent by all dealers and not just, uh, you know, of all, of all colours in training and development of people. I think, you know, everyone recognises that people are the key to all of our businesses and it doesn't matter how big you get if you haven't got your family feel if all your team members don't feel like people if they're made to feel like a number if you can't keep your relationships with the customers you know if you if you can't keep your feet on the ground and be the people that you were when your dealerships were small family-run businesses then i don't think in our industries you've got a lot of hope you know it's all a relationship relationship game so i think the way I look at it, in terms of infrastructure, premises, training, development, wages, yeah, vehicles, whatever you name it, I, I think most of those dealerships of, of any make and manufacturer these days are investing quite heavily in, in on the on the grounds. But it's mainly coming from within the industry, of course, rather than externally. I think, yeah, I mean, I, it, it definitely isn't exciting enough for the city boys, is it, to come into agriculture? I mean, it's consistent. I remember my uncle once telling me that our return wasn't you know, very exciting. And I said, well, I'll take, I'll take dull and steady for the rest of my life rather than exciting and, you know, boom or bust, quite frankly. So, um, but for the city boys, it probably isn't. I think there's also an element of we're all under quite short term contracts. And, we, you know, we've been a John Deere dealer for over 55 years now, but we're still on a very short term contract. And maybe for those city guys, the, you know, the, the security around short-term contracts isn't something that overly excites them as well. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, there's many reasons why maybe that hasn't happened. I think that leads me back to neatly to, to, to Howard, because I understand that one of your uh, key areas that uh, takes up quite a lot of discussion within Klimar is, is dealer contracts. And um, one of the areas of concern is that uh, this does put off potential banks or funders if they, if they can't nail down uh, a contract with a supplier uh, tightly enough. Yes, I mean, it's sort of come, come under quite a lot of scrutiny. And uh, I mean, the, the Germans particularly uh, have been quite strong on this in terms of trying to get a better better dealer contract and, and longer term contracts. And, I'm, and I mean, we have had a think tank and um, a working party on, on dealer contracts. It's very, very difficult to, uh, to, to be in a position to say to, to a manufacturer, unless, unless you've got a really strong dealer representation of a particular brand, for, you know, to be, able to, to be able to force the issue of getting um, a decent dealer contract. I mean, we did a few years ago have a really good dealer contract with Valtra when they first started, or Valmet in those days. Um, which was negotiated when when class had a partnership with them, um, whereby you know if the if the deal if the franchise stopped for any reason, then they were, had to take back all the parts and everything in the contract. Well, I don't think there's many contracts out there today that would be like that, and um, that's one of the things that they've been trying to get, certainly in Germany anyway, and and in the states. I, I mean, the dealer contracts actually have been much stronger 
than they have in some other, certainly in Europe, in places. Indeed. So how do you see the dealer landscape uh, evolving over the coming years? Manufactured-owned dealerships, uh, the onward march of the long-line dealers into almost soulless representation, uh, perhaps service-only dealers without a tractor franchise. Could we see more dealer collaboration, such as that with Chandler's and Lister Wilder um, over the Massey Ferguson and Kubota franchises? And uh, more recently, two West Country dealerships, Red Lynch and Compass Tractors, combining to set up a dedicated JCB branch. What do you think, David? Well, I, th- I think it is going to split, to be honest. I think you're going to have the, uh, the the longliners, if you like, who are going to become more and more single brand. Not, I'm not saying 100%, but I think, you know, it's clearly the ambition of those big manufacturers to sort of leverage their position. If you think about it, if, if you've got to manage 10 dealers and you're going to put 100 million through those 10 dealers, it doesn't cost you any more if you can put 200 million through those dealers you're still going to cost you the same amount to manage them if you like your 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 sales and marketing spend doesn't change that much so you can see the attraction that if you've got a very strong brand and a very strong dealer network to keep broadening your range either through acquisition or through organic development is a very attractive thing to do so i can imagine that you almost get a split where you've got the long line long line manufacturers who are tied going to be tied in more and more with these long line dealers and then you're going to have the others who are going to be a little bit more niche um maybe are not going to serve all markets they're going to pick the markets that they do serve and uh, and i think you're just going to see a, a split if you like between one or the other you're, you're either going to be a long liner or you're going to be a more of a niche player with perhaps multiple franchises. Do you see it like that, James? Uh, I mean, you, uh, you, I won't say you are almost a long line because you have a, a lot of other franchises under your, your belt, but do you see a time when it's conceivable that you could be single brand? Uh, not, 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 if, uh, not if our main brands don't supply products that you know, fit all segments, ultimately. I mean, you know, we're not going to try and sell stuff that competes with our main, main partners, but where they don't have an offering, then we're definitely still looking at opportunities to fill those gaps. And uh, I guess even for the larger dealers, we're still trying to be uh, niche suppliers in certain areas and, and sectors where we can be. And it's about specialization, I think, um, to some extent. You know, we're not asking people uh, who are good at selling combines to start trying to sell golf equipment or, or or construction equipment or other things. So it's about trying to be for those longer ones as you know as niche and as specialist as they can within a within a big organization. But I mean I, I think certainly in a lot of areas the technology is going to be, you know, the big player going forward and how it shapes the industry and um, you know which manufacturers are going to win the race on the technology game. What's it going to look like in the future in terms of robotics and automation and and who's going to be able to keep up and supply that type of equipment and look after that type of equipment and optimize it? So I think um, I think digitalization and, and technology is going to have a huge bearing on what the future looks like over the next 10 years. And, and do you have any uh, thoughts on, uh, obviously, in the States at the moment, they've got a little bit of a debate going on, a little on, in deep court cases about uh, right to repair. And uh, I, I think I've even heard it said uh, by someone like John Deere, and I apologize if I'm paraphrasing, but but uh, you don't actually buy the tractor. You almost sort of, we loan it to you to be able to supply service over it uh, for a fee. Um, is, is this going to come stronger and stronger I guess it would depend a little bit on who wins the court case on right to repair to some extent. Um, 
you know, there's lots of elements, aren't there? People are looking for extended warranty, fixed costs. A lot more of the stuff we're selling now is on five, seven, eight year agreements all in so that everyone knows where they stand and fixes their costs. I think there's also the argument of some health and safety aspects. So, you know, if you're repairing, I don't know, a pickup hitch calibration and you get it wrong and it falls on someone, uh, are you covered um, if you've done it outside of manufacturer specification? Um, will they open up the door so that you can buy tech manuals, get access to all the computer systems free of charge and full access? Because at the moment it's pretty expensive and slightly limited access. So obviously if they open the doors, the courts decide that that needs to be a more open playing field than your service only. Dealers might might well have a really strong place to play in the market, but uh, we'll have to wait and see what the powers that be decide, I guess. Uh, and Howard, I think this is um, high on your agenda within Klima, not not right to repair, but RMI, certainly, uh, re- repair and maintenance uh, information. Uh, is there any unanimity on that from Klima? Well, I think there's um, there has been a lot of work done on that, and we've been uh, have, we've been lobbying for it. But I still think at the end of the day, there isn't really the volume in the agricultural machinery market for this to work well certainly here in the uk anyway because i don't think that this, the average um white man fan if you like or the guy is going to is going to have the resources to tap in to um major manufacturers and it's gonna it's gonna cost whatever happens but i think in the rest of europe it's a different scenario there are specialist repair places that don't have franchises i mean they will benefit from the from what is going to what is going to happen i mean it it is going to happen the same as the card dealers have access to um, to information and it and it could change considerably considerably over there I don't see it happening here personally, but James, if I just just come to you specifically, and then then on to David, but um, if I just talk about expansion of dealerships and and the way you grow organically and 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 so on, uh, what are the challenges? Um, you, you are very strong on setting out quite clearly the culture that you would like to adopt within Tuckwells. Uh, how difficult is that to uh, pass on to a company who you then take under your wing, and and also has a different customer profile because i guess the customer profile uh, of many of the customers in the southeast where you have bought burdens now is different to that a lot of the customers in uh, your your home area shall i call it up in the eastern counties uh yeah no well i think the customer base is obviously very different and then uh, we've got a vast uh, array of different uh, production systems now from from fruit and vineyards and uh, large arable golf turf councils you know the, the whole the whole portfolio really but I think the basics of what they expect is still absolutely the same, you know, minimum downtime, um, people that care about their businesses want to help them improve. I mean, ultimately, you know, their success is our success. If they're not profitable, then they're not going to have any money to invest in in the services that we can offer. So, so yeah, we, we've got to work with them and to try and help them be as profitable as, as possible. In terms of installing culture into multiple branches across multiple geographies, it's, it's pretty hard work, obviously. I'm, I liken it to uh, if, if I've got a management team of 15 and Clive Woodward gives me a lecture on how to galvanize a team. I'm like, well, you train on the same pitch and you meet in the same changing room every every day, whereas mine are in 15 different changing rooms or on 15 different pitches. So uh, maybe you'd like to write a book on how to do that. But um, so, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But as I said before, you know, trying to maintain the family feel, trying to make sure that, you know, we know all the customers, we know all the team members 
and that we're here to support them and get that consistency across across the entire geography that that's that's the challenge you know it's you have to have slightly more not a corporate outlook but you need more more policies and procedures because you've got more people that need to follow them but if you lose the flexibility and you can't maintain that family environment in agriculture and turf i I think you're going to struggle to be really successful to be honest uh, David, um, James is trying to, to, to match his cultures on north and south of the Thames. Um, you were in charge of a company with uh, dealers and distributors uh, across the US um, in different states, different laws and so on. How difficult was it then to, uh, to get the company culture across to, to, to different, uh, uh, different people, different companies, different cultures and so on? Mm. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it was, it, it, it's an interesting difference, isn't it, between uh, America and over here. And, and I mean, a lot of what is said is true, is that if you, if you look at the Americans on one side, the Europeans on the other, and we're somewhere in the middle, I would say culturally that is that is correct. I, mean, I think the biggest thing with the Americans, uh, in, in, in particular, if I look at the dealerships over there, was they were more focused, if I can put it this way, on short term uh, it sounds like a criticism, but in some ways it's a plus and sometimes it's a minus. But I, I do remember having a, having a tour around a lot of the dealerships through America. And you know, if you just sat down and said, OK, so uh, tell me about your business, they, they'd almost immediately say, well, did well last quarter. We're focused on, you know, we need a bit more for this quarter and da, 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 da. And then there'd be further discussion about the business. But that was the first thing in their minds. And then I remember carrying on through some of my European distributors and Tell me about your business. And the first thing, well, I've got my two sons in the business. You know, we're looking at when they come through and how that succession goes. And then they talk more about what was going on today. So, you know, I think America does have a, a very Wall Street attitude, if you like, to, um, uh, to business. And it's about what are we doing this week, this month, this quarter. And I like that urgency. I like that bias for action. I like that drive. But it can sometimes lead to shorter term decisions being made rather than perhaps really long term decisions, which you typically get more here in the UK and in uh, in um, uh, and in Europe. But in terms of us trying to drive our attitudes into as a manufacturer into the dealerships, what I, I really focused on was keeping it really short, really simple, something that everybody could remember and repeat as opposed to a 500-word mission statement, vision statement, all this stuff that nobody cared about and nobody really understood what it meant. And so by just trying to keep it really simple and snappy and saying the same things hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, keep saying it until you're bored, I think we did make some progress in getting the culture through. Howard, do the various languages within Klimar always translate into a common name? Well, uh, I mean, uh, Klimar is a, is a French name that nobody understands, so we are in the throes of still using the same words, but not in French. So it will be rebranded, if you like. Um, there's quite a lot of changes going on within Climar. We're, we're moving to having a permanent uh, office in Brussels um, with someone in a lobbying position, so a permanent general secretary, and so that we can, we can do more lobbying. I mean, we as the UK have been members of Climar right from the beginning when it started back in 1956 i think it was so we've we've been in and out of europe um and uh, we're still sticking with with being re- you know representative of Klima. Now, there are other non-europe non-eu members that are in Klima, switzerland for example um so uh we are basically trying to represent our 
BAGMA as, a, as an organization within within Klima and get our and we will we will still have things that we've got to adhere to when if we want to deal with with anyone in the EU basically. It is generally accepted that we are entering a new era of farm technology, but autonomous vehicles, robotics, alternative fuel sources. How is this going to impact on the type of staff dealers will require in the future? Uh, James? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, like I said before, technology is going to be you know, one of the uh, fundamentals in what the future of the dealership looks like going forward. And But you know, technology is only any good if it drives down costs. You know, We've got to produce crops at a lower cost we've got to reduce fixed costs and variable costs and um you know we've got a changing landscape in agriculture and you know even in the turf environment um we're we're looking at a lot of variable rate applications now and um but these technologies have got to drive down drive down costs and and we're looking now at not just with the john deere technologies but we're looking at robotics so how we can do more scouting and and bring more variable rate herbicide and fungicide applications into the sprayers we're looking at drainage and how we can use mapping and topography mapping to to do more effective drainage you know and, and be able to produce better crops and get our land in better order for less money effectively so um and we are in, we're employing all sorts of different people now you, you can sort of learn agriculture faster than you can learn technology which which used to be the other way around we used to say we need to employ people that have got either turf or agricultural experience but i think it's probably flipping on its head a little bit our latest recruit actually used to be came from a theater he was into uh, lighting and electronics at, at the theater and he's and his family grandfather i think and maybe his uncle had a bit of farming in them and he's come back and he's now one of our technology specialists in in that area so yeah it's a, it's a different type of person that we're looking for but I think it's absolutely fundamental and it's only going only to increase. And David, are you confident that we will be able to attract a new breed of agricultural engineer that James has just referred to? Um, I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, actually. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? We've got a lot of companies out there, uh, and I'm thinking about the manufacturers at the moment, who, who've built empires on being excellent at building diesel engines and hydraulics and stuff like that. And you've almost got to over the next 10 to 20 years, going to chuck all that away, all that human capital, but also actual capital, because you've just spent billions of pounds re-engineering everything in stage five, and it's yeah. still on balance sheet as tooling and stuff like that. And suddenly you've got to try and cannibalize all that with this new technology as we move more into the uh, electric technologies and so on. So I think it is interesting as you look at the future. I mean, one of the things that I think is, will be interesting how it plays out over the next 15, 20 years, I guess, is do we get a Tesla come in? So if you think about all the other uh, golf car manufacturers, sorry, automotive manufacturers, they didn't buy Tesla in its infancy. Whereas a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is you are seeing little companies springing up who are manufacturing robotic um, and autonomous equipment, but often they're being bought up by a Toro or a John Deere or whoever else that, you know, they're acquiring the, and so that you're not getting a new company coming through that's built from day one on autonomous and electric as we're having now in the uh, in the automotive industry. So I think it'll be very interesting to see whether you get a Tesla disruption coming in who's prepared to take it all the way through, not just do the technology, but take it all the way through to full manufacturing and full distribution and, and compete with the giants of the industry as they are today, or whether those giants are going to buy up any of those kind of startups and prevent them coming through and disrupting 
in that way. So I think that's a very interesting question as we look towards the future. But I think it is going to take time for us all to accept that what we thought we know and what we thought we knew is now changing. But there's nothing new under the the sun, really. I remember attending a Ransoms presentation at uh, which I think you, David, were involved. It's got to be at least 25, if not 30 years ago, depicting a robotic mower at work on a golf course coming out of its hutch, mowing a green well before daybreak and then disappearing for the day, all illustrated by a creative video. So the, the pace of development in this and other fields has been remarkably slow. I've got the video, actually, Chris. I think. <laughs> yes, I remember that one. yes, I think it's happened slower than we all anticipated, I think. Howard, is the uh, recruitment of New Dealers staff a common problem throughout the Klimar regions? Yes, I mean, it's one of the one of the huge discussion topics that we have on, um, uh, and, and it's the same problem in every country. Uh, I mean, we've done some position papers for Klimar, and that was one of the, that the UK led on because it's um, attracting new people into the industry. And uh, it's uh, for a long time, we've had sort of a, a really uh, a probably negative sort of impact for people who are leaving school as far as agricultural engineering is concerned. And it's, you know, it's a case of raising the game. And it has been done fairly successful in what's happened in the UK, but it's definitely a problem across every, probably every company and every country. So I really must thank you all for your input and thoughts today. And and finally, it is generally recognised that this industry flies under the radar of wide public recognition, that that we have an image problem. How would you best uh, sell its attractions and sell it to outsiders? I I think one of the key things is with this industry is if you look at it, whilst a lot of people come into this industry by accident, they don't plan to come into it, they just end up in it almost by happenstance. But interestingly, once they're in, they stay. And I think there is a joy in this industry. You do go to some lovely places. You know, if you walk the turf at Wembley, at Twickenham, you've you know, been to Augusta and walked the Greens, you've been to Pebble Beach, you've been to St Andrews. You know, there were some beautiful places and iconic. And I think as well from the agricultural side, that real understanding and closeness towards we're growing our own food we're growing food for the nation is something that i still think can be a a joy for people to to really to to be with and you compare it with other industries we are doing something worthwhile yeah. we're creating you know the theaters of dreams in terms of your twickenhams your, your wembley's and we're also producing food to put on the plates of the nation Howard, um, if I just come to you, uh, you've been in the industry a few years. Uh, uh, how satisfying do you find it? And can can your satisfaction and enthusiasm for the industry brush off on others, particularly of the younger generation? Yes, I, I think it's um, it's always been difficult to sort of find a, a sexy name for an ag- agricultural technician, really, isn't it? And uh, I think um, what we've tried to do is to is to get the message across, and it's it's getting the message across to young to people who are still even thinking about their options before they even get to GCSEs. And it's been a, it's been something that we've done. I was involved with tractors tractors in schools years ago. You know, had various different things to encourage people to to become interested. And I think now we're at a situation where 
the the pay scales are, are pretty good in in agricultural engineering whereas at one time we lagged behind everything else and i think the the change because of technology has meant that the job is generally a lot cleaner and um and i think that we've just got to keep pushing and keep getting keep getting the message across and it's i mean i think possibly it was, it was more fun in the 80s when we uh, when we were things were um we were dealing with more family farms the pressure has got greater um but the technology has has moved on and in and it has encouraged more people to come into it recently i think and james lastly uh you, you mentioned that you've just employed somebody from the theater uh, is this a trend that you're finding that you're you're starting to employ people who don't come from the uh, regular source of, of employment that has been in the past. <clears throat> it's incredibly hard. So uh, certainly don't be fooled that I've got a plethora of uh, new people coming from all sorts of uh, walks of life that want to suddenly get into turf and agriculture. And I do still think that if you've got a passion for turf, you know, you're going to come in and be successful in turf. And if you've got a passion for farming, then that's a big, that's a big plus point. But um you know, we've got to attract different people from all walks of life into the industry for sure. And, and we are seeing, you know, a different breed of people coming in. But I think we've got to work hard on, you know, the innovation cell. You know, we are we are a very fast moving industry and, and we are in the next 20 years going to move even faster. So it's a very innovative, fast moving industry now. Um, it's very stable. You know, you only look at the family businesses that are around and, you um, They've been around for 50, 60, 70 plus years. So I think, you know, when people are looking for a career somewhere where they know they're going to get paid, they've got stability, that's a, that's a big plus point for them. I think, as David said, there's a great environment, isn't there? You get to work in some wonderful places, whether it's out in the fields or magnificent golf courses. I mean, it's not everyone that gets the privilege to be out in a van or a truck traveling the countryside and breathing in the good air and being out in the open countryside. But I think we're also working hard on the fact that we, we bring community, you know, the farming community and the turf community. You know, you build relationships, don't you? you build friendships and you don't do that in every industry. But we're also trying to readdress this work life balance. So traditionally, agriculture is known as an industry where you have to work, you know, 100 hour weeks from July all the way through to the end of October. And, you know, people just don't want to do that. Young people this, in, in this day and age don't want to do that. So we're working out how we can, you know, work a bit cuter a bit smarter so that that people can come into our industry and get a decent work-life balance um as well because pressure on families and people and societies they, they don't want to do those sort of long hours that they used to so so again many thanks to an excellent panel and there's so much positivity there mixed of course with realism we are constantly seeking ways of describing our industry and they were all there well paid stable great environment, fast moving, challenging, family values, secure and a joy to be a part of. Surely an irresistible combination. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me and this is Inside AgriTurf.